This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Premature anti-fascism. Creature senses. Nicholas Flamel. And Marcel Duchamp. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. We kick off with another Ask Ken and Robin, and in this segment, Jeff Jones asks the following, or rather, I have condensed what Jeff Jones asked to the following, which is, how do I run a game in 30s America where the characters fight Nazis, where the players know they're evil, but U.S. society and its legal system don't? So, uh, Ken, could you kick this off by giving us sort of a uh, historical context for what 30s American characters are going to know and think about uh, the... German regime and the people who support it before things start happening in Jeff's campaign? Well, I mean, the 30s is a big period. In 1933 is when the Nazis take power in Germany. They're an underground movement, or not even an underground movement, they're a political party in Germany, and they have their supporters in America even then. But I one assumes that he will be kicking off his campaign once Hitler has actually risen to power. And it is at this point that you begin to see uh, sort of the German-American Bund, which is a group of uh, mostly German-Americans, hence the name. And like all expatriate communities, they have a rooting interest in what goes on back in the homeland, the Heimat. And some of them uh, wind up 
you know, supporting the Nazis because that's just how the universe breaks down, just like some Germans supported the Nazis. And depending on when you took the election, close to a majority of Germans supported the Nazis at one time or another. So a biggish chunk of American Germans also supported the Nazis. And then you had a number of Americans of other stripes, either people who were uh, visceral anti-Semites who felt that the Nazis attitude toward the Jews was just exactly the coming thing that we needed to have more of in America, or you have visceral anti-communists who didn't care one way or the other about the Jews, but felt that Stalin was a horrible monster who needed to be stopped. And certainly in 1934, you can't really look at them and say, well, you people are just crazy. Stalin's a, a good old Uncle Huggy Bear. So there's a lot of people who are, to one degree or another, sympathetic directly to the Nazis. And then there are people who just don't want to get dragged into another European war and that sort of isolationist stance, the sort of Lindbergh stance, is winds up being sympathetic to the Nazis because obviously we would not be dragged into the war against Britain. So staying out of the war, uh, if one comes, becomes a uh, what they used to say, what they used to call in Marxism, an objectively pro-Nazi position, even if you yourself are not necessarily pro-Nazi. So you have sort of a, a wide variety. Of of people who might and, or might and Lindbergh not be... was more than just an isolationist, though he thought we could use a nice uh, homegrown authoritarian movement as well. The degree to which Lindbergh's politics ever cohered around anything is is a little bit debatable. But you can go back to his uh, speeches on America First, and very few of them are authoritarian. As a matter of fact, once he starts arguing against Roosevelt, they're if anything anti-authoritarian, right? Because it's Roosevelt during the New Deal who's engaging in, you know, the centralization of the American bureaucratic state, and Roosevelt, and Lindbergh is against that, as well as being against arming to go to war. Now, he does, after his visit to Germany, believe that Germany is the coming thing, as his wife put it, the froth, or the scum on the wave of history, and so therefore, going to war against Germany, which at that point looked like it had the world's most powerful air force, was going to be a suicidal move for America. And remember, Lindbergh comes out of an America that had not built a single plane for World War I. Lindbergh is not aware of the fact that all we have to do is just sort of, you know, rub our eyes and say, all right, Europe, seriously, and just crush them. And so he's operating from a, a sort of a pragmatic position, but his authoritarianism can be and has been overstressed, uh, I think. He certainly believed in sort of a eugenic technocratic society, but so did virtually everyone who went to college in 1934. So anyway, you've got a number of those guys, and then on the anti-Nazi front, you have obviously American Jewry who are very, very eager to point up the fact that these people are horrible and that the laws against the Jews, beginning with the Nuremberg Laws and then moving through things like Kristallnacht, get worse and worse and worse. Certainly, Kristallnacht turned Lindbergh off being anything remotely sympathetic to the Germans, although it didn't turn him off the notion that, you know, we should stay out of the war. Uh, which is, you know, uh, fairly morally uh, obtuse, I guess we can say, in this, you know, long hindsight. But the, the, the there, in addition to Jewish uh, movements, there are also American communists who hate the Nazis like poison right up until August of 1939 when they love the Nazis because the Hitler-Stalin pact... The orders orders come down from the top exactly, to, uh, to, to switch around that. And so, so you have the American communists, you have American Jews, and then you also have a sort of just generic group of, I don't know if you can call them free thinkers or just people who don't like Nazis and just don't like the smell of them, but there's some number of those. And of course, their numbers are magnified after the war starts to be everyone who was not actually Charles Lindbergh himself personally. But at the time, even in the 30s, you had groups of generally sort of 
rich banker types in the East who were buddies with uh, various British uh, financial interests, but were not buddies with the British financial interests that were busily trying to make deals with Hitler. They were buddies with the other ones. And so you have that sort of tradition. Uh, there's a Actually, there's a, a chapter of the Golden Dawn in New York uh, run by a guy, I think his name is Saul Untermeyer, which I think uh, lets you know that he comes from the anti-Nazi <laughs> yes. for the absolute best reason to be anti-Nazi side of things. But yeah. he has a lot of other rich buddies who are part of his Golden Dawn circle who all sort of act as a covert anti-Bundist movement, even in the 30s, even in America. And they sort of appoint themselves to be in charge of keeping track of the Bund and writing exposés for the newspapers and finding out what's going on with these guys. So real-life Dennis Wheatley characters. Right, exactly. Real-life Dennis Wheatley characters, um, complete with white magic, or at least gold magic. That's a historical context, so now let's start warping things into the adventurous context of a role-playing game campaign. So in real history, are these uh, are the Nazis and their pals actually really up to anything that heroic characters would need to thwart, or do we need to up their plan and menace in order to uh, have a plot line. I, I think, ironically, if you're looking for evil German infiltrators trying to destroy America, it, the Kaiser did a way better job of that than Hitler did. I mean, Hitler literally thought America was a non-entity, which, given that he lived through World War One, you'd think he would have learned the difference, but he was certainly a guy who who, who bought what he I'm was I'm not sure selling. if he learned the right lessons from World <laughs> War I well, in general. You could learn a lot of lessons from World War I and still be wrong about most of them, but the fact that a million and a half American men showed up and then you lost should surely should be one of those. Although, admittedly, the British never learned it. Um, uh, some of them, uh, the British historians didn't. The, the French seem pretty aware of it. Uh, anyway, the uh, so there are no... Uh, there's sort of the fifth column that that's going on at the time. That's a term that Franco made popular, but there's... Uh, Nazi guys who are sort of providing aid and comfort to the Bund, but it's very much a, the, the same sort of thing that the British were doing out of, um, out of, uh, what was it, room 302? The, the, the room where Intrepid and his guys were working to draw America into the war by doing pro-British propaganda. It's very much a dueling propaganda war. He doesn't have, uh, agents, uh, fanned out of, along the eastern seaboard preparing to, to sink, uh, you know, destroyers or whatever. And you've got Roald Dahl running around, mm -hmm. uh, uh, seducing romancing his way into the yes. hearts of uh, female influencers. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so there's, so there's probably a not, you could have a Nazi Roald Dahl and that wouldn't so, be too. So the real history basically gives us dueling PR campaigns. Right. So how do we crank that up into a adequate threat for, our, uh, and do we want to pick a genre for the for this uh, 30s campaign? Jeff didn't specify one. Do we just want to do straight-up espionage, or do we want to nerd-trope this and make this like Pulp Heroes or something? I, I think that, you know, just based on what he's talking about, that there's a... His guys are going to war against the Nazis covertly. I think we have to assume that it's either a Pulp sort of adventure thing, or maybe he's doing a, a Trail of Cthulhu hero deal where they've discovered that the, the Nazis are behind you know, this, that, or the other occult monstrosity. In which case, you're the, the, you're the gold magicians, right, yeah, you're the, 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 already referred yes, to. Mr. Untermeyer and co. Um, there, there is a good book that you can look for, by the way. A guy named John Roy Carlson wrote a book called Undercover, and it was published in 1943. And he uh, said that he spent four years hiding out in the Nazi underworld. Uh, and, and this was wartime propaganda, obviously, by a guy who was a, um, what do I want to call him? Uh, self-inflating, uh, publicist, I guess. And, um, so 
This guy, for example, believes that Laura Ingalls Wilder is part of the Nazi plot. So you can sort of draw your own conclusions <laughs> from this guy. But his book is going to give you a lot of really good sort of, you know, there I was watching them plan to blow up the Statue of Liberty type nonsense that you can then claim in your game world is, you know, but the skin of the onion, but the tip of the apple, but the the edge of the iceberg and more Nazi badness is up, is on its way. I mean, you, you get down to the point, for example, where uh, because the writers of uh, early comic books were uh, almost to a man Jewish, they very much uh, wanted Superman, Captain America and Batman to go around and beat the hell out of Nazi saboteurs well before the war even begins to start, and so uh, you've got that sort of golden age superhero universe where uh, there's lots of uh, of guys with big chins and bad attitudes getting ready to blow up the army base, and those turn out to be agents of a certain foreign power. Right. So those agents of a certain foreign power, they are the plots that you're trying to thwart are, uh, I guess, the typical plot hooks of. Uh, sort of pulp espionage mm -hmm. uh, with or when you add the pulp hero uh, flavor on top of that or the occult flavor. And of course, those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have your occult pulp heroes. Um, and so they are trying to cripple America's industrial base so it can't produce the planes and other materiel that they're going to need. Mm -hmm. And that would further discourage them from getting into the war. They are uh, replacing influential people with uh, uh, doppelgangers, and that could be robots if it's a, a pulp campaign, or uh, that they're hypnotizing them magically in a more occulty version of that. And so you could even have, you, you know, Lindbergh could be under a spell, and your job is to then go and uh, rescue him and break the spell. And uh, what else springs to mind? You've got um, the notion that they are using their Nazi magic, their Nazi occult, to um, uh, infiltrate. Uh, maybe they're trying to infiltrate American occult groups. Uh, good old-fashioned Rosicrucians, like our buddies um, uh, that we've talked about before, Manly Hall and, and, and his Hollywood pals, uh, Nazis in Hollywood trying to influence movies being made. Of course, that's a good Rocketeer uh, tie-in. I, I think you've got any number of possibilities. And the fun, I mean, he, he his question implies that it's a bigger challenge or not as good a game if the, if the government won't let you shoot Nazis. But that that adds to the excitement, right? You have to really cover it up. You have to make sure if you've got to shoot this guy that you, you know, do it really, really well. And it, it's not so much a matter of, oh, I see him and I shoot him in the face and then we're done. No, you have to really have thought about that because that guy might have had diplomatic immunity and there might be a giant deal. And then by shooting him, you've actually allowed uh, the SS to come into America and operate openly because they're investigating the murder of this guy who was a, a beloved German businessman and, and bookseller and interested in, in many cultural matters and, you know, all, all, all manner of, uh, of, of, con of uh, complication can ensue. So your Doc Savage-inspired character, instead of uh, killing all these guys off the way that the Shadow-inspired character wants to do, would instead take them to his uh, uh, re-education therapy center. Mm -hmm. Take them upstate. And, uh, take them upstate and uh, probe their engrams and uh, denazify them uh, ahead of time. Right. Or you would use some sort of uh, magical spell to uh, prevent them from talking, right? You've got a, uh, a, a demon, like, clings onto their head and, and makes it so that they can't uh, talk or think and, and report back to their hated Nazi masters, that kind of stuff. If you want to do a sort of a darker, how deep into the esoteric and the dangerous are, are we willing to, to go to save uh, America and the world from this much worse threat? What kind of deals with the devil will we make to prevent the greater devil from, from escaping? And that can sort of prefigure the fact that you're going to be working with communists who, as 
proper atheists don't believe in any of this bourgeois, and all they want to do is um, uh, go out and start fights. So what are our uh, Nazi pulp slash occult villains that we're fighting going to look like? It's going to be your standard sort of dual type that goes back again to the Golden Age. You've got your supercilious, blonde, aristocratic George Saunders type Nazi um, the guy who's you know speaks English with an American accent and an English accent, and he he can uh, move through society, and he's untouchable, sort of your your Errol Flynn type guy. And then you've also got your your thug like uh, uh, monster Germans who have uh, been imbibing the, the 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 eugenics serum, or they've been uh, uh, radiated by the philosopher's stone, or whatever awful thing the Nazis have got. They've done it to make these sort of uh, Frankenstein or Mandrake Hulk people. And those are the, the, the sort of the, the muscle that will come out and just snap you in half. And that way, I think it becomes more of a fair fight. If the Nazis, you know, if, it, if it's ever a straight-up fight, first of all, it's illegal. And second of all, they might win. And so you have to use your knowledge of your home ground, which is America, to lure them into ambushes and, and you know, sort of have a resistance campaign without there being an occupation. I think that would add, add fun to it. So what character are you going to want to create for this uh, campaign? Who do you want to play? Um, I think it'd be fun to play Saul Untermeyer or a John Thunston uh, version of Saul Untermeyer. Um, the guy who, I don't know if you're a big Manly Wade Woman fan. Of course you're a Manly Wade Woman fan. But John Thunston was his sort of, um, uh, his Giles, his occultist who had a silver-bladed sword cane and would go around fighting werewolves and monsters and Satanists. And I think that would be a good character to play, that sort of, uh, Upper West Side, uh, a brownstone full of books, you know, Stephen Strange of Aunt Lelettra, maybe even if, if the campaign is that wild, but certainly the sort of um, uh, uh, two-fisted occultist that I think the 1930s uh, created, in fact, and then also demands even more of. I, I would be tempted uh, either one of two ways, either the dark vigilante character, mm -hmm. who's like, well, why can't I gun down uh, these Nazi villains with my twin 45s? That's what I do with regular flavored villains. Uh, these guys are no different. I'm a vigilante. Uh, the cops are already looking for me. I don't, uh, uh, I'm just going to wipe these guys out. That's the efficient thing. Uh, if I wanted to be politically cautious, I wouldn't have gone into the vigilante business. Right. Or if it's more of an occult thing in order to have sort of the, justify the historical foreshadowing that we already have as people uh, living in the now, you could have a a uh, psychic sort of a Cassandra figure who has visions and has seen the future and has seen uh, where things are going or seen the possible futures and knows how bad it can get right. and is trying to uh, stop those futures. And therefore, it then uh, allows the uh, characters to be aware of just how bad uh, the Nazi regime is going to get. There was a pulp superhero in, I think, the Nidor comics. He was a public domain guy, and I don't think I used him in Adventures into Darkness, but he was, he was named the Oracle, and he would go to sleep and dream about a crime that was being committed, and then he'd wake up and go fight it. And that was his sort of superpower. But you could, yeah, you play sort of a super version of that guy, where he's a, he, he's a, he's a detective, but he's overwhelmed by these visions. Or the Sandman, I think, in one of the, the later treatments, the Golden Age Sandman had that uh, dream power, and the, and the future would come into him in these sort of visions. I think that's a strong possibility, especially if you tie it into sort of the 1930s uh, being really concerned with projecting the future from, you know, things that things to come, shape of things to come, the uh, Wells uh, paranoia about World War II and, and all the things that spread out of that. And I guess another way of doing that is you could be a robot from the future. Right. Uh, who you've come back to uh, to kill Hitler, but you uh, you miss the mark somewhat and are, uh, you know, trapped in America by the uh, resonance engine and therefore can only go so far in terms of uh, fulfilling your uh, mission. But you, again, you've got all of this uh, 
uh, historical knowledge at your uh, beck and call, except, of course, the accident that sent you back has somewhat scrambled the details so that you uh, don't have absolute knowledge of uh, things that are going to happen to you. You just have, uh, you know, the broader historical knowledge that the average player, the average non-Kenhite player is going to bring to the table. You could also play a refugee, right? You you play a, a refugee from the Nazis' sorcerer ex- sorcerer's experiments or, or whatever their badness is. So maybe you're like one of the, the, the dwarves that's uh, been, you know, penned up in, you know, a, a pentagram underneath Favelsburg building uh, magic rings and tarnhelms for the SS, and you've escaped and you've taken some of your uh, magic materials and your and your know-how with you to America, and so you become a mank for people like Xylard or or Fermi or Oppenheimer who come to America and immediately turn their abilities over to the side of good. And if it's an occult game, you've got occult you know sort of crafty abilities. You're, like I say, you're a dwarf. If it's a Cthulhu-y game, maybe what you've got is um you you've been exposed to the mathematics that the German mathematicians have derived out of the Necronomicon, and so they're imprinted on your brain, and so you can act either as an oracle or as a sort of human uh, interface, uh, like a detector, that, you know, the closer you get to some sort of mythos energy, the more um, uh, the, 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 the matter your math becomes, and, and people can use that as a way of triangulating. And if this is in the, the later 30s, uh, you could sort of do a uh, an inverse Fu Manchu in that you are a Manchurian hero ha- who has uh, fled Manchuria, which has been invaded by the Japanese by this point, and you've come to America to awaken the Chinese community to, to the threat of uh, the, the Axis powers, and then uh, you can be sort of the 30s version of a, a feng shui sorcerer or, or martial artist even. Or you could even be, you know, F- uh, Fu Manchu's daughter, right? He escaped uh, from the fall of uh, North China. He's hiding out somewhere, but he sent someone to America, someone high up in his organization to try and organize the resistance before it's too late. Because remember, as I never tire of reminding people, Fu Manchu wanted to kill Hitler. And if we just let him, Maybe we could have avoided all this nonsense. <laughs> Thanks, Nayland Smith, jerk. Yes, that that could be uh, a sort of a, a fun, ambiguous twist. Is that, uh, or you know, you could be Fu Manchu himself, right? right. Fu Manchu could be I, your. I, I think if you're Fu Manchu, then um, uh, if someone's playing Fu Manchu, then you have to play the shadow, Robin. You can't just play the shadow sort of guy anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could actually, you know, uh, whoever's, you know, if you're running this at home, you're not constrained by mere intellectual uh, property law. Uh, property law. So you could have an you know an all star actual mm-hmm. version of these guys where it could be you know Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu and uh, Doc Savage Doc Savage in the shadow and Tarzan. have a, sort of an all star uh, group mm-hmm. and an immortal Sherlock Holmes uh, hopped up on uh, royal jelly. So anyway, uh, that's a ton of different answers to that question. So we can consider yet another question answered and yet another segment concluded. often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Heights' vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, 
the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. Hellgrain <laughs> superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrain, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. The warmth in the chairs, the smell of Cheetos, the tremor in the atmosphere as dice clatter past, the sense that the books have been put back in a different order than they were set up, tells you we have entered the gaming hut, but we have entered the gaming hut not as men, but as creatures! <laughs> creatures! Creatures! Of the night and or whatever other time you come in. Really, the, the whole time, any time you're going to play. Maybe you're playing Saturday afternoon. I'm not here to judge. Yeah, you can be a marathon all day, old school monsters. Right, yeah. Who knows? So I w uh, this topic comes from uh, reading a cool fact from the uh, world of true science is that uh, researchers have discovered that uh, bats, which we all know have sonar, will jam each other's sonar in order to get the food they're going to. So if you know that somebody's, uh, one of your bat pals is swooping down toward a tasty bug or what have you, you jam his sonar and then swoop in and get his bug on him. And there's also a species of moth that can jam bat sonar so that they're, uh, they've got an anti-bat cloaking device. Um, so that put me in mind of uh, a really classic role-playing idea, which is the uh, creatures that you encounter that have uh, different senses. And this can also be uh, different senses that uh, non-human uh, species that you can play as uh, characters uh, do. So, Ken, do you have a, a favorite sense uh, other than our five ordinary senses that uh, creatures can have or, or interesting things that we can build on that? How many cool senses can we come up with? We've got sonar already. What else is there? Well, um, pit vipers uh, obviously uh, can detect heat. You've got the ability to detect uh, motion in the air that cat whiskers can do. Uh, you've got also motion senses. I think some of the sharks or dolphins, some of those uh, various uh, large uh, dangerous fishy types have 
uh, emotion sensors as well for their immediate area, sort of situational awareness. When I wrote my part of the bygone bestiary way back in the day for uh, Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade, I sort of looked into animal senses because, of course, you wanted to be able to play as magic animals who hang out with wizards because it was uh, the 90s. And, <laughs> and, and they're, they're very goth. Uh, animals oh, at the time. Lord. It, it, it was a good book and, and it had a lot of good stuff and I learned a ton and even, you know, things that we just think we know about like smell are a whole different universe if you are a dog or a, or even a cat. Uh, for example, uh, dogs can smell if you put your books back in the wrong order. They can tell people apart by scent. They can tell how long someone has been in a room. They, they, they gather so much more information just by smelling, I mean, and deep historical information, information that we don't have accessible to us by any of our five senses, and we couldn't, even if we could smell the, you know, the, the if, if one of our fellow gamers is perhaps a more stereotypical fellow gamer than the standard listener to Ken and Robin, we may smell their presence, but we don't know how long it's been that they've smelled that way or, or know anywhere that they've been necessarily. Dogs know all that stuff. Heightened sense of smell is the ability to travel sensorily backwards in time. Mm -hmm. So if there's, uh, you know, if, if there's been a coyote in the neighboring field, a dog will go nuts and he'll know when the coyote was there from the uh, length of time. So that that's a sense that allows you to sort of reconstruct things that have happened. So that might even be a sense that is interesting in something like, you know, Ash and Stars. Maybe we should come up with an alien race with heightened sense, or there could just be like a viral enhancement uh, that gives you a heightened sense of, of uh, smell and so that you can reconstruct the smells in, in the room and you can uh, tell how long it's been since uh, the victim was killed and uh, what uh, alien possibly killed them. And you could be, you know, the uh, futuristic version of, you know, Sherlock's home smell detective. Mm -hmm. or, or Daredevil. Right. Yeah. I like the notion that uh, you land on the planet and the aliens are all like, hey, you've been on Rachel 9, how was it? And they're like, what? And you think they're psychic, but of course they just have really good senses of smell. And that could be something that uh, if you're doing a sort of an F20 game where you're going down in a dungeon, if you know that the uh, goblins in your world have a really heightened sense of smell, Which is you then an have awful to, fate for a goblin, I suspect. But yeah. uh, Right. Uh, or <laughs> cobalts or whatever. Yeah, but the goblin smell is great to a goblin. Right, yeah. it, 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 uh, it's the human smells that are disturbing. You know, uh, rotten fish and stuff. And they've got 137 different words for rotten fish smell because yes, there's right. 137 they're, different... They're, they're garum chefs, every last one of them. Yes. But yes. the, you know, the smell of uh, butter may uh, offend them wildly so that you may have to uh, do things in order to disguise your smell. Otherwise, every goblin who uh, you encounter is going to have surprise advantage because they figured out that you're coming uh, before you even got in the dungeon door. Right. And so you then, ha and then they've got all their traps activated. And you have to throw stuff. away all your rations once you figure it out because they can smell those. Yeah. So you've got to uh, spend a, a couple of days, you know, eating only uh, fish and uh, other things that the goblins would eat, and that's uh, a somewhat trying... Probably roll around in, um, uh, in, in goblin effluent of one kind or another. Right. And so that uh, seems very unheroic, but it's, it's what you've got to do if you're going to go into a, a goblin nest and not have all the traps gone. And you've got to take your armor off to do it. I just point that out. And, and dogs are not even like the edge case in, uh, in smellology. A, a Gila monster can apparently track an egg that you've rolled across bare rock 
And that sounds ridiculous, but apparently that's what Gila monsters can do. So I think your cobalt having a good sense of smell, that's practically science already. Right. Um, and so the the other possibility from that is that if there's a creature uh, that is hunting you that has an incredible sense of, of smell and they're, uh, you know, you've captured their egg or you've captured a treasure that was valuable to them or simply they've been assigned that if it's an intelligent creature, the task of hunting you down and they have, uh, you know, a piece of your scarf to smell, uh, that's very difficult to hide from that creature because it's, uh, you know, if it can sense where you are from uh, miles away. Now, obviously, in, in a fantasy game, there's all sorts of ways for uh, your enemies to sense you. But that's, you know, even if you're in an anti-magic cone, the sense of smell is inherent to the creature. It's not particularly magical. So that you've got to find some other way to get this thing off your trail. And, of course, it should take a while before you figure out that you're, uh, that the guys who are tracking you down uh, are managing to find you again and again because they uh, they know your smell. Yeah, and then we can also talk about things like um, the magnetic sense that birds, migratory birds might have, or even butterflies. We can talk about uh, sort of the homing instinct, whatever that is, if that's just smell or if that's some other, you know, certainly in a, in a fantasy sort of game or an occult sort of game, it, it could be a magic thing that there's always one place that the thing can always find, whatever it is. Yeah, and that may be sort of a directional sense, right? That um, if you you sort of attune yourself to the magnetic fields of the Earth and you know where that one location is that you want to get back to, well, again, if you ha- make that creature a little more intelligent, if they can, if they know one spot on Earth that they always return to, the uh, you know the spawning ground from which they were spawned and will one day return, that they can then always orient themselves. And so that might, again, be an interesting, uh, it could be a directional sense that you could give to uh, a non-human character in the in the game where, you know, there's no way that, you know, wherever he is, he might be lost in terms of how to get through a maze, but he always knows where north is because he can triangulate that based on where the, uh, where dwarf home is. Right. Um, and you can also, again, going back to smell again, obviously, uh, my cat can smell when I'm in a good mood versus a bad mood. I, I mean, he can tell, right? It's not like he grew up, you know, noting, knowing what human facial expressions are. He can smell the emotions on you. Dogs can do the same thing. So using your smell as sort of an empathy or telepathy on that level as well is, again, that's real science. So you could have maybe the vampire can tell people who are particularly needy of, of romantic accompaniment. And so uh, when he shows up as the mysterious uh, Stephen Dorff-looking stranger. Uh, he shows up to people who are into sort of mysterious Stephen Dorff-looking strangers by dint of being able to, to smell or, or otherwise sense that. And if you have a creature that can smell fear or anger, or fear and anger, again, that's a challenge in sneaking up on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it can sense heightened adrenaline, there may be a creature that you have to learn meditation in order to uh, suppress your innate aggression that you would normally bring to a fight and to achieve this uh, state of bliss and harmony as you go to uh, pursue it. So uh, that, you know, it would have to be a big deal creature that you would have to be hunting down in sort of a Arthurian sort of questing beast sort of thing. But that may be the, you know, the uh, training montage you need to go through is that you need to be able to uh, tame your inner fear and anguish. You need to go off and uh, work on yourself and and resolve your uh, dramatic hook in order to then be able to uh, 
get close to this beast without it uh, becoming aware of you and fleeing. Also, there are um, animals that can sense specific sorts of um, chemicals, which I guess is sort of the same thing as smell, but like it's different. For example, when bees go to a, a, a place, they can leave different uh, combinations of pollen or, or pheromones or whatever to signal other bees what it's like. Obviously, I don't think that dogs can actually write with their urine, but they I, I suspect that the don't go here well, definitely leaving messages. The, the don't go here spray is different from the how's it going spray just for some I don't know if it's the uh, you know, the mental state that they're in when they do it or, or whatever it is. But you can definitely leave messages that are only apperceptible by, you know, e- either one of the standard five senses tuned for that or by some, you know, sixth or seventh sense, depending on how magical you want to get with it. The notion that some animal can see ley lines is probably not at all out of court in a, in a magical game. And certainly we know that uh, dogs uh, can sense werewolves, even in human form. So if we have uh, creatures that communicate via uh, spray and spoor uh, and don't have a language that that's how, you know, that that's how they leave messages for each other uh, that, uh, and you have to go and, and deal with them and fight them. That raises the possibility of a, a magic item that allows you to translate uh, what messages they're leaving in the dungeon. So you uh, see a little wet spot on the wall and you wave your uh, magic wand and you know that it says, Oh, uh, they're aware of our presence. We've got to prepare. And in in a sort of an Ashen Starsy or space type game, you could have an an alien uh, creature that can sense gravity, right? I mean, we sense gravity, but in the sense that it can follow gravitic lines of force, it can know the difference between the a far off black hole and a and a really really close bowling ball. I mean, it, it would have you know a, a, a sort of a what do we want to call it? discriminatory gravity sense in a way that we don't have, or it might be able to sense you know. Uh, the decay of radioactive electrons. It can, it can sense radiation like a Geiger counter does. Um, there's a possibility that, uh, let's say you're running a, a fantasy game where the problem in town is that there are people being taken over by uh, parasite creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to go into the dungeon and find uh, and ally with another creature that has the sense in order to tell uh, an ordinary person from a person who's been taken over by the parasite. And that could be um, a, a smell thing, or it could be uh, you could have uh, creatures that have the ability to uh, basically see through uh, other creatures and themselves with a kind of an MRI wave that they give off, and they can then see inside you. Uh, that might be a predatory creature who's uh, only interested in, you know, that's how they detect food. Yeah, that's how they go for your tasty sweet meats. Yeah, that they, uh, they're they looking for particular organ meats, and there's some creatures that they're interested in, uh, some creatures that they're not. And uh, you could have uh, another thing that dogs can sense is uh, whether people have cancer or not. Uh, and so you could have, uh, uh, you know, some of the X-Files creatures. I think, is there, I think there's an X-Files creature that uh, eats people's cancer, so you mm-hmm. could uh, turn that into an F-20 creature and uh you know normally it would be you know a good thing uh to have your cancer cured but of course this creature does not discriminate it just uh tears you apart getting in all those tasty cancer cells so uh that might be uh you know something that invades the town and you uh have to protect the hospital from these sickness beasts that detect the sick in order to devour them and actually talking about devouring things you may not want devoured uh, there's of course the classic notion of the sin eater uh, you could have, in a certainly in a, a strongly occult or fantasy world, you could have a creature that can detect sins on you, uh, that can that can smell 
you know, lust versus gluttony versus murder versus whatever, and these these might be trained and kept by the clerics or the wizards to, to root out crime in the town, which is always going to be bad news when the adventurers show up, or they might just be roving packs, and it's like, oh, no, it's the roving packs of... Uh, of of murder eaters, um, everyone go outside because that's how we get rid of murderers in our town, and it's just they're just going to come through and eat the murder right out of you. And if you survive, you won't be inclined to murder anyone. Um, also, you'll be minus your hands. You could also have creatures that can detect what you're going to do in uh, in the next three seconds, so that uh, gives you a justification for them to have sort of interrupty powers mm-hmm. or uh, super fast initiative or ways of uh, countering what you're doing, and so the the trick there is you have to then learn the the poker face to not have these subliminal tells that reveal exactly which way you're going to uh, strike with your sword, or always uh, strike randomly. Yes, uh, which is incredibly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the possibility exists for almost all of these senses. If you have a plot that turns on them, one of the uh, kind of turning points in it is that you can then get the remedy that that blocks that sense mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, there may be a, you know, a ring that prevents creatures from seeing through you with their MRI ability or an amulet that uh, stops them from smelling you. Uh, and the kobolds, I think maybe that's how they stay alive in the dungeon with all those other bigger monsters is that they are like, like chameleons, but they're chameleons for all senses. So they can smell like orcs when they're in an orc passage. They can smell like humans when they're in a human passage. And they just do it, either they do it instinctively, or the kobolds that are really good, the kobold rogues and thieves, are the ones who, are, who have learned to do it best. And so they can, in, to everything except sight, and they, they do it so powerfully that maybe they can just walk amongst you as a kobold, but because all of your other uh, senses are telling you that's actually a person... You don't recognize him as a kobold until he tries to attack you. Right. That's a really cool version of sense jamming, yeah. right? Is that it, uh, and it might not just be that you think that the kobold is a dwarf, but it just might kind of jam you up and make you feel uh, uneasy. And so you just don't want to be around this vagary that you cannot quite get your, mm-hmm. uh, get your hands on. And at the very worst, you're at like a minus to hit it because your senses are all telling you it's not where your eyes think it is. In a world where you admit a little more sciencey stuff, you could have a creature that can sense DNA from a distance. And so your uh, kobolds or goblins or whatever could have the sense of uh, knowing the species identities of everything else in the dungeon. So they know uh, ahead of time, uh, oh, well, there's orcs over there, better switch on my uh, better think orky uh, thought so I smell like an orc. Well, if you can then, you know, if you can capture a kobold and interrogate him, he can then tell you ahead of time, well, in that chamber, that's where the snake people are. And if you go on from there, there's the, uh, these, these weird sort of lion dudes. I don't quite know who they are, but I can uh, sense them when they're close. And so you might have a reason to communicate with, or at least to interrogate the, the kobolds or, well, we're giving a lot of senses to the kobolds. You might create a new uh, thing to have this sense. And so, uh, or, or again, that could be something that you could uh, give to an alien race so that uh, you have that tactical advantage going ahead and you have more uh, choice as a player. Do, I, do we want to attack the orcs first or do we want to see what's up with these lion guys first? How about a creature or a species that could detect social dominance? Right? I mean, you get that sort of with dogs that are like, you know, all right, who's, who's in charge of the pack? And then they don't, like, go after him unless they really need to. But maybe they can tell that about other people. Like, there's a, hor- there's a breed of horses that can tell who's got royal blood or who's a king. 
Or when they show up at the party and they're all like bowing to the cleric and the paladin's like, hey, what the hell? It's like, eh, the horses have detected that I'm, you know, actually supposed to be in charge, that I make all the decisions. And you, the GM, can even be keeping track. All right, who does the party actually agree with, despite who's in charge? And then have an, an, an encounter with a creature that can instinctively sense social dominance. But that also might be a good creature to tame and bring along with you when you want to you know, go after only the orc shaman or only the orc warlord, and you don't want to waste your time on all the all the mook cannon fodder. You could have a, a sense that enables people to just sense someone's great destiny. And so when you're trying to pick who the new tribal chieftain is, uh, the, you have to send a party of adventurers off into the dark forest to find the knowing owl. Mm-hmm. And the knowing owl never wants to come with you. Because, because it knows this stuff. It knows this, and and what's what? There's there's nothing in this for owls, right? And it's and it, and frankly, your destiny is not particularly interesting, <laughs> right? It doesn't or, want to hang out with you, and of course, because you're player characters, when you get there and you're just trying to capture the knowing owl to decide which of the big chieftains will be, and then the knowing owl goes, "Oh, you, you are the one with the great destiny," you, and uh, you. as you know, and most player characters at that point when told they have a great destiny just go oh no <laughs> well the, 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 they they do it about the third time i think the first time they're like yay yeah <laughs> then they learn better <laughs> right uh, well i sense that we have uh, covered a lot of different senses and can move on to the next segment He has been for several weeks. The consulting occultist has decamped to Paris, where he sits with a uh, croissant and a glass of uh, burgundy and doesn't try to let the strange movements of the paintings with the impossible landscapes on the wall and the way they shift under the candlelight bother him too much because he's here to, in conjunction with our uh, running series on Dream Hounds of Paris, uh, tell us about. Uh, someone who's a character in a transformed form in Dream Hands of Paris, but it's also a historical figure. This is uh, Nicolas Flamel, who's a 14th, 15th century bookseller. 14th through the 15th century. I mean, he, he, he was a long-lived fellow. Yeah, who, who in the 17th century, other booksellers decide must have been an alchemist because that helps them sell books. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about Nicolas Flamel. Okay. Uh, Nicolas Flamel is someone who has got, as you as you hint, at least two reputations and possibly three. He was born probably in Pontoise, moved to Paris to make his fortune, as he did even in the 14th century, um, lived in Paris for a great long time, into his 80s, which was, it, it would be unusual perhaps even now, and is certainly unusual in the 15th century. He marries a rich widow uh, named Perenelle, um, and apparently the marriage is a very happy one that they are, um, uh, that they're seen in each other's company a great deal. And to the extent we have any contemporary knowledge of them at all, it is that they had a, a very good and companionable marriage. And he dies, uh, in 1418 or 1417. And he, he left a good portion of his, of his wealth to charity. And that would be the end of it, except that, uh, for whatever reason, about 200 years after his death, uh, an alchemical book says that he had been the guy who designed these hieroglyphic figures that had been up on an arch in the Cemetery of the Innocents, 
and the hieroglyphic figures and arch having disappeared, this book purported to explain what they were, and again attributed them for reasons that beggar the imagination a little bit to Nicholas Flamel. And this is why, even though real history has no evidence that Nicholas Flamel ever did anything alchemical or magic... As it wouldn't. As it wouldn't. I have a couple of questions. First, why this guy? I mean, his the source of his wealth is not mysterious. It is marrying a rich woman. Everyone in Paris knows how that works, because that's what they all want to do. And so, it's not like, oh, he must have discovered alchemy. No, he just was nice to a rich lady, and there you go. Now your bookshop will never lose money. Good for you. And was there any indication that his bookshop was any more occultic than any other bookshop? I don't I don't think that there could have been just because he's operating it in Paris, right? I mean, he, he, he's right there underneath the eyes of um, what what's the Parlement, or the guys who try, you know, witches and wizards. Um, and he would not necessarily have been trafficking in, in the black arts, although, again, 1418 is slightly before you have a lot of the black arts in which to traffic. And it might have been just a conflation that if you own a bookshop, you must be learned. And if you're learned, you probably know magic, because magic is one of the things learned people know, in the same way that Thomas Aquinas gets magic ascribed to him by later uh, medieval lore. Right. So so basically, if, if in 200 years we still have a civilization, they may think of Kenneth Height as the Wizard of Chicago. They may conflate uh, <laughs> your uh, writing on this subject with actually being a magician. They, they may indeed, and um, uh, wouldn't that be great? Uh, I, and they would have certainly a much better argument than they do with Nicholas Flamel, who, again, as far as we know, never wrote anything, much less alchemical textbooks. And the notion that he was a doctor also sort of shows up somewhere, and I think that that is either someone explaining how he would be an alchemist because obviously just being a bookseller doesn't make you an alchemist. He has to be experimenting with stuff. And so they decided he was a doctor post hoc, or because he would endow charitable causes among them hospitals. Maybe that's how his name gets associated with the medical arts. But I, I just have to think that there's, there's so many people in France to have picked to have been the guy who made up your uh, hieroglyphics that they picked Flamel either because there is a pre-existing legend that he is one of the guys or that his occult his bookshop you know had you know had enough of a reputation his house is still standing in paris it's like the oldest house in paris now um and i've i've stood there and not gone in to buy brunch um because now it's like a little um uh, a restaurant but maybe it's just that everyone knew where his house was and they sort of knew who he was because he was he was nice to people but that seems like an odd thing to suddenly turn around and say you're an alchemist i mean it's it's it, it, it's not like someone decides I'm an alchemist. That makes sense. It's like someone decides, you know, I don't know that uh, John Kavalik is an alchemist. Right. <laughs> uh, well, it could just be right. Somebody pulling a random detail. It's like, oh, I need somebody kind of old. Um, oh yeah, Nicholas Flamel. I remember his house is over there. Okay, yeah, he was a bookseller. There we go. And and we do know that he that he designed his own tombstone. And so maybe the theory is we have his tombstone. So he's designing things to go in cemeteries, so maybe he designed this magic hieroglyphs in the cemetery. But that's, you know, to me, that's the big question about Nicholas Flamel, is, is where did that come from? But the theory being, the, the sort of the legend is, that in 1378 he bought a book from a traveling Jew uh, in Spain, and that the um, uh, magic uh, book that he bought was called The Book of Abramel and the Mage, which at that point was, uh, I guess, in need of a of a, of a um, provenance, and that it was from that that he learned to make the Philosopher's Stone. And my favorite part 
of his legend is that he takes the Philosopher's Stone, he makes gold, he makes silver, he makes the immortality elixir, and he shares it with his wife. I, I love that about Nicholas Flamel. He's, he's not an evil magician at all. He's a good guy. He uses all of his gold. He gives it away to charity when he fakes his own death, because obviously he's Nicholas Flamel. And I, I just like that. I, I think that's terrific. That is not usually what happens in your legends of alchemists. Usually they they, they go insane, or they're torn apart by demons, or, or they pine for the love of the fair Marguerite instead of their wife. But nope, this is, I love my rich widow wife so much, I want to stay with her forever and ever and ever. Which, again, argues for it being a love match at least in reputation, right? That it's not, you know, he just married her to get it, get her money and then sent her off to, you know, crochet or whatever they did in 1418. Well, maybe this is not a, a French attempt to explain magic, but a French attempt to explain a, a happy marriage. <laughs> to explain monogamy, that's what it yeah. is. That's why he was so unusual. It's like, this is so strange, he has no mistress. He must be an <laughs> alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to be immortal? Well, this guy was really happy. He had a great life. <laughs> there we go. We've, we've, uh, we've put our finger right on it. So, anyway, that's that, that sort of renaissance, or not renaissance, that sort of early modern uh, ascription of alchemy to him during the great Rosicrucian furor of the early 17th century, creates his reputation in uh, English and in, you know, the continent as a badass alchemist. And once you've got, you know, at, at, even now, if someone comes up with one new thing in the occult or in the New Age or in UFOlogy, every other book is going to quote it and blow it up to be a big thing because they want another a nugget of of uh, of grist to 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 roll their mill over. People need new craziness. They need new about. craziness, and they want the same craziness that everyone else is saying, and they want new craziness. It's like Hollywood in a way, and so they. Um, uh, I, I think that once you've got a new guy, a new alchemist, everyone rushes to say, "Oh yeah, Nicholas Flamel. He was part of my tradition, and he's the guy who made up uh, this monad, or he did this thing." And even Isaac Newton is writing uh, stuff about um, uh, Nicholas Flamel's uh, awesome powers, and so. The, the, the notion that the caduceus is an alchemical symbol created by Nicholas Flamel to uh, indicate alchemical something or other, that's, that's, uh, that, that's apparently something that Newton gets on board with. So Flamel becomes a, a really big deal, and then, of course, he winds up in good old Harry Potter and yes. will never die now. Now he really is immortal. Yeah. Uh, and he's in Dreamhounds of Paris. Of course he is. Uh, Andre Breton at one point cited him as one of the figures that the Surrealists should uh, emulate in the effort to... Uh, look at occult knowledge and bring uh, the occult more into their work. Um, and in Dreamhounds of Paris, uh, of course, it doesn't use the uh, boring old revisionist. He's just a name somebody plucked out of a hat 200 years later. It, he actually is immortal, but he became immortal in a very Lovecrafty way. Um, and he is now a ghoul, and he's the ghoul who guards the catacombs of Paris. Now, the book doesn't address what happened to his uh, his wife, uh, that might be some investigation that you might want to run, or perhaps you can find a dream form of Perinelle in the dreamlands or dream her up and then somehow get her back into the Paris catacombs in order to ensure that he will always allow you to take your physical form, your waking form, into the, the dreamlands with you. And, of course, maybe she got into the dreamlands because she didn't want to live in the stupid catacombs. <laughs> uh, maybe, yes. Uh, it might not be such a happy marriage anymore now uh -huh. that he's People a ghoul. Apart when one of them becomes a ghoul. Lives in the catacombs, <laughs> and she's perfectly happy and, and serenian. Uh, but uh, he may want you to go and, and uh, get her back. And, of course, you'll have very good reason not to want to come, and that'll be the challenge of the, uh, of the scenario. So uh, are there, uh, other than Harry Potter and Dreamhounds of Paris, are there other 
cool uh, fictional version of Nicholas Vermel that you would point people to? Well, he uh, gets, uh, as I mentioned, occultists like to drag other people's occult into their occult. Um, he got made one of the notoniers of the Priory of Sion when that was being made up by uh, the late surrealist Gerard de Sede. Um, in the 60s, and so that winds up in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and in all of your Holy Blood, Holy Grail affiliated uh, works. Uh, people then spend lots of time uh, rubbing their chin about Nicholas Flamel and what secret could he have found, and maybe he, you know, was uh, connected to the to the to the Merovingian lineage and this, that, and the other thing. So you can draw him in through that doorway to most of your modern day occult uh, nonsense, and certainly, I think that. Anything that you've got going on in France, I mean, if he's an alchemist, one of the things we know about alchemists is that they made cosmetics, right? That was one of the things that they would they would make. Um, Paracelsus made them. Uh, we know that uh, Nostradamus made cosmetics as well as making uh, delicious jams and 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 savories and prophecies. And so, if the L'Oreal and Coty uh, uh, factions, these great um, industrial cosmetics companies, who are very much behind La Cagoule and the other right-wing um, fascist uh, secret societies in France, if they are using Flamel's alchemical recipes as the heart of their makeup, who knows what that implies. That either might imply that Flamel has done a deal with them in the past and he can't renege on it as long as they keep up the tribute, you know, keep up the vig, you know, leave nine dead people in the entrance of the catacombs every Saint uh, Sulpice day, or... Uh, maybe he's mad that they're like um, uh, ripping off his stuff and he w wants to send you after them. Or maybe everyone's makeup can be tuned alchemically to uh, cause them all to dream at night uh, and open up a giant uh, rift in the dreamlands. Or it can be tuned to turn them into unwitting spies uh, for La Cagoule to send its tendrils through French society. You can do all kinds of things um, as long as you've got players who won't just titter at the notion of magical rouge. But again, rouge is, you know, one of the fundamental components of the elixir of life. And in Dream Towns of Paris, uh, Flamel is portrayed as, you know, he's a good, uh, he's a ghoul. He's king of the, the Paris ghouls, but, you know, he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, like Pickman. Uh, and so uh, one thing you can do is you can uh, use him as a way of disposing of uh, particularly difficult occult enemies. So if you have someone who is... Uh, seeking the Philosopher's Stone and the secret of immortality, and they're committing murders and causing all of these other troubles. You know, uh, Flamel will cooperate with that, and, uh, you know, he will, uh, if you bring him someone who really, really deserves it, uh, might give him uh, his own brand of immortality, and that way uh, you've uh, uh, dealt with him, or have you, because that gives you a, a later scenario in which the uh, a ghoul version of your enemy escapes from Flamel's control, and uh, you have to track him down and uh, uh, dispose of him, so you can have a, uh, a sequel from that. Uh, well, I think we've covered a lot of uh, Flamel ideas, and it's time to move on to our final segment. The series of identical doorways piled up next to each other, the presence of a delicious-looking drinking fountain, and the fact that there are mustaches on all the damn paintings tell us we've entered into a particularly hilarious sector of the culture hut. And dwelling within the culture hut, we find a guy who uh, 
I personally think is perhaps the most underappreciated humorist of the 20th century. Robin, perhaps you have a different perspective, but we're talking, of course, about Marcel Duchamp. Right, and before we go into Marcel Duchamp, I just want to uh, dip quickly into the corrections department. Uh, last week I indicated that uh, André Breton uh, died sometime in the 50s. Actually, he died in 1966. Um, so uh, Marcel Duchamp is the most influential artist of the 20th century. Uh, he basically uh, created installation art and the idea of questioning what art was and what its role in a, a gallery was. He was French. He lived for a time in New York where he met up with Man Ray. And so a lot, he has more of an American connection than a lot of these uh, figures in Dreamhounds of Paris. He's a playable character in Dreamhounds. So if you're looking for uh, someone who is um, acerbic and witty and kind of above the fray. He was doing uh, things in the teens that basically created the avant-garde. He was the first person to do a lot of this stuff. And so just by the sort of the force of his personality and his uh, sort of sense of ride attachment, he was never someone that André Breton could exercise any kind of authority over, uh, but quite the contrary. He was sort of a senior figure. He wasn't always in Paris, and he had no interest in being the Pope of anything or leading meetings, uh, but he was sort of a, uh, so if you want to play kind of a above it all, uh, not voice of reason character, but a, a sort of a figure with intellectual authority and a sense of humor, uh, you can uh, play uh, Duchamp. Um, so he, uh, in the teens, uh, in 1912, he creates a painting called Nude Descending a Staircase, which uh, pretty much introduced uh, North America to Cubism. A Paris gallery uh, show uh, exhibition refused it, so he showed it in New York, and it sort of turned America on to uh, modern art. So America, of all the English-speaking territories, was much more interested in weird new art than, uh, say, uh, uh, Britain was, or the colonies like Canada or Australia. Um, and uh, he was hanging out with Man Ray in New York and brought him along to uh, Paris. And he has a very few pieces because um, he kind of made uh, these sort of signature works of art that have these sort of uh, kind of obsessive self-interrogating quality. And once he did that, he kind of figured he was mostly done. He didn't have this desire to churn out an enormous uh, body of work so that the few things that he did make have this huge... Uh, cultural resonance to them. So another one of his um, kind of key works in the Museum of Modern Art is the uh, Bride Stripped Bear by Her Bachelors or the Large Glass, which is this big uh, collage of mostly little pieces of uh, uh, metal with a vaguely figurative quality to it. And they're uh, between pieces of glass. At one point, the glass uh, dropped and shattered and Duchamp was delighted by that. He said it was uh, better than it had ever been. But maybe the most famous thing he made were his ready-mades, which were just uh, ordinary objects, which he maybe signed or transformed in some minor way, like a bottle rack or whatever. Or most famously, a uh, fountain, which is a urinal that he signed R. Mutt and uh, installed in a gallery. And that was uh, incredibly shocking in its day. It still offends people now. Um, and it's the first installation art where an object... Uh, get you to try and uh, disturb your mind and uh, think in a new way. And uh, and that was, you know, an act of cultural terrorism as potent as anything uh, committed by any of the surrealists. 
Yeah, and now my, you know, my, my takeaway from Duchamp is that things like Fountain are meant as sort of, I mean, obviously they're, they're meant to make you think, but I don't think that he meant people to then do that over and over and over again for the next hundred years. No, because he didn't even bother to do it over he and thought, over again. The point is made now. Obviously, art is culturally constructed. We're done. Now I'm going to go figure out something else I can do. Yes, I'm going to go play chess, yeah, among other things. But I mean, he also he does other art between then and, and giving it all up for chess. But uh, is there is, is there a sense in which uh, people are missing the joke, or am I just overemphasizing the originality and uh, cruelty? I guess is the word I'm looking for, or humor of of Duchamp. What's going on uh, with Duchamp there? Well, uh, Duchamp certainly had a biting sense of wit. Yeah, and I'm. Pretty sure he would think it was funny that uh, now, literally a hundred years later, uh, people are still doing that. Um, that, uh, but then again, you know, people are still making paintings, and they're more than a hundred years old. Yes, but but paintings are saying other things than 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 what Fountain is saying. Fountain is saying pretty much, you know, exclamation point, period, underline, there. Right, and and in fairness, not all installation pieces are just saying that, right? right. Yeah. Is they're, they're taking that format and then trying to say something else about, or not even say something, right? They may just try to be a purely visual experience or, you know, look at these candy wrappers in a new way, mm -hmm. or here's this exploding piano that comes down from the ceiling. Isn't that also cool? Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know if he would be, uh, I, I think there might be installation pieces that he would think were quite interesting. Uh, but if there's an installation piece that is only trying to shock you by its uh, out of contextness in a gallery, I don't imagine he would find that uh, very interesting. His very last work, which we'll uh, talk about a bit later, you know, is also an installation work. So it's not that he gave up on the format entirely. It's just that he had other things to uh, occupy himself, that he made a very few simple uh, uh, statements. So um, I, I don't reject all of installation work just because Ma Duchamp did it perfectly the first time, <laughs> uh, but Duchamp did it perfectly the first time. All right. Um, well, we'll, uh, we'll leave that there uh, to enigmatically draw the, the, the spectator and move on, as Duchamp did. Now, Duchamp is one of those guys that just keeps on giving. He's like someone took four NPCs and mashed them up into one guy. Because not only is he an artist, not only is he the father of Dada, in a, in a way, or one of the fathers of Dada, he's also um, telling Peggy Guggenheim and rich Americans what's good, and he's also uh, famously creating a transvestite persona, Rose Salavi. Is that, that's got to be magic, right? Uh, it is. Well, absolutely. In Dreamhounds of Paris, that's what transforms him into a dreamer and takes him into the dreamlands is that uh, Man Ray, uh, an American photographer, uh, well, then painter, soon to be photographer, took this sort of portrait of him uh, in drag as Rose Selavy. And so that makes him also the originator of everything that Cindy Sherman and other people who are all working with uh, image and uh, gender and self and also the. Uh, you know, the artistic photograph that is not uh, a photograph of a thing, but is posed and staged in a way to make a statement. So that makes uh, Ma uh, Ray and uh, and Duchamp the, the father of that as well. And so in Dreamhands of Paris, uh, it is Rose Selavy that you may well run into uh, in the uh, in the Dreamlands if you uh, do not have someone playing Duchamp as a, a player character. And that's um, and even if you are, that's probably your default form, uh, is this female version of, uh, of Duchamp. Duchamp, at one point during the early 20s, 
when uh, the uh, other Surrealists were making their experiments with uh, automatism, the poet Robert Desnos uh, found himself writing perfect little Duchampian poems. He wrote these uh, little sort of witty apercoups. He could uh, he would kill at Twitter if he were still around today. Um, and uh, he found himself writing uh, in Rose Selavy's voice. And uh, Duchamp, of course, thought it was nonsense and laughed it off. He didn't have any mystical views uh, particularly. Uh, but in the world of Dreamhounds, uh, it may well be that his dream form is, is getting up to things and writing poems and sending them to Desnos uh, without his awareness. And then uh, to tie it back to our buddy Flamel, of course, Achieving the mystical androgyne, the union of red and white, the union of male and female, is one of the alchemical accomplishments, right? So maybe the Rose Salavi is the alchemical Rose Crucian um, uh, accomplishment, right? That he's got Indeed, yes. a, an alchemical transition as well as an artistic, personal, and oniric transition going on. And then, you've alluded to it earlier, but anyone who's read... I think three Fritz Leiber stories knows that chess is basically nothing but magic and secret warfare. So tell us about Duchamp's chess and how we can uh, take that and use it if we are not interested in using his um, art, his anti-art, or his uh, alchemical hermaphroditism. (laughs) Uh, So from the early 30s on, uh, Duchamp becomes more interested in chess, finds it more profound an experience for its intellectual challenge and also its evanescence than most art. Uh, now, it's, he's not abandoning art, but uh, as I said, he only creates X amount of it, um, and it tends to refer back to itself. So he's for, he's also making these um, art boxes full of uh, little bits of um, pieces of ephemera that all relate to other works of art. So there's like a box that kind of recreates the process of putting together uh, the bride strip bear. Well, that gives you a magic item right there as Duchamp has a secret box from the dreamlands with stuff in it. Um, So Duchamp spent most of his time in the thirties traveling around Europe, looking for people to challenge him at chess because he was quite good at it. So in uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, he can be also going through the dreamlands looking for people to uh, play chess with. And those matches can have, mystical resonance back in the world so that if he challenges King Karanes to a game of chess and wins, uh, your group gets certain benefits back in Paris, but if he loses, certain bad things start to happen. And uh, just the fact that if you're playing Duchamp, if you're going around looking for people to play uh, chess with in the Dreamlands, of course, that can lead you into all sorts of Dreamlands problem of the week that you then have to uh, address, and you may be able to sort of do uh, chessomancy and, uh, you know, according to by which means of checkmate you are able to uh, defeat an enemy, you can then tell what's in the future uh, for you in the uh, the dreamlands or even in the real world. And uh, as you suggested, it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's a battle of uh, kings and armies in symbolic form that can have all sorts of magical weight. And then also he invented a insoluble chess problem and he used Enneagrams, which are a uh, sort of a magical diagram that was very big with Gurdjieff and that sort of new thought occultism uh, as a means of figuring out chess positions. So he's got occultism in his chess and he's got insoluble problems in his chess, which are, of course, both things that will draw you to the Lovecraft. We probably should have a whole chess segment later on in the show at some point uh, because there's so much stuff in chess. Chess is so full of things. But of course, if he's a non-player character, 
then you begin to get the sense maybe the Duchamp is moving you around the boards of the Dreamlands like a chess master. That because you've been to one of his galleries and you've looked at one of his pieces of art or he's given you one of those little magic boxes or he's seen you as Rose Celevy in his dreams and, and kissed you, that you are now his knight or his pawn or his bishop and he is moving you around the board to some uh, agenda that only he knows. And being Duchamp, it may be kind of a funny to him, haha, not uh, funny to you, oh my god, agenda. Right. And past the time frame of Dream Hands, there's another elliptonic connection to Duchamp. Uh, sadly, like most elliptony, it turns out to be a make up oh, But man. there is the thought that his final installation work, which is uh, if uh, you look through uh, two little holes in a doorway in, a, in the museum that it's installed in, and you see a, uh, a naked, uh, a sort of a lifelike sculpture of a naked woman, and there's a, a lamp. And it has been uh, mooted that uh, Duchamp is referring to the fact that he might have known who the black uh, Dahlia killer was. There's a book right. called uh, The Exquisite Corpse, Surrealism and the Black Dahlia Murder by Mark Nelson and Sarah Hudson Bayless. And it springboards off the uh, idea uh, from another book called The Black Dahlia Avenger by a guy named Steve Hodell. Yeah, who says the, his dad did it. That the murderer was his, his dad, Dr. George Hodell, who was big in L.A., uh, art circles and a fan of the Surrealists and knew Man Ray. Yeah. Um, so it was one degree of separation from him and, and Duchamp. Now, uh, Duchamp, as far as we know, had took no interest in the Black Dahlia murder. He was uh, on a cruise ship at the time, and the, uh, he had already started the concept uh, for this installation before the murder. So uh, in reality, uh, it doesn't really hold up in part because I think, uh, as you explained to me at one point, uh, Steve Hodel thinks a lot of other crazy murders were also <laughs> committed by his dad. <laughs> yeah. That said, I have that book that you were talking about, and I actually... F <laughs> so full of good is Duchamp that I'd actually forgotten briefly about it. But if you get a hold of that book, there is a... Uh, like a web of connections. Uh, I think it's like the end papers of the frontispiece that will just blow your... Like Vincent Price is in it because he was an art collector as well as being friends with a lot of these people. And of course, what it means is that the social world, even in the 1930s, is so small that if you are accomplished in almost any field, you will wind up knowing everybody. And certainly if you know Peggy Guggenheim, you're going to know everybody, which Duchamp certainly did. Um, but there is... But, but yeah, that, that book is a great thing to look at as, you know, either you make it the occult truth in your game, and it doesn't matter that he's on a cruise ship because he's uh, uh, looking on as Rose Celevy in his dreams, or you use it as a sort of thing you can build if you decide you want to tie uh, Duchamp to uh, something else, or anyone really in that in that frontispiece uh, a diagram to anything else, because they're all going to be tied to a bunch of stuff because, again, it's the 30s. Uh, yeah, so that's a really fascinating world. Sort of a, it brings you kind of in the in the James Elroy realm. So mm -hmm. if you want to do, a, you know, a Dreamlands uh, Elroy crossover, you could sort of use all of these uh, connections to do that as well. So um, are, do you have any uh, other questions about Duchamp before we uh, go off and play chess? Uh, are the are the movies that he uh, did with uh, Man Ray or any of those? Uh, a can you find them on YouTube? Are they worth seeing? Is is his career as a as a film character or a art film character worth anything, or is that just a thing that he that he does? He to... didn't really have much of a role in in Man Ray's films. 
all of those films are available on on YouTube, but they don't have much of a Duchamp connection. They're okay. much more a Man Ray thing. Oh, and he coins the word mobile when he's hanging out with Alexander Calder, and Calder's like, what do I call these things that just hang from the ceiling and move around? <laughs> and yeah. so, there you go. That Duchamp is behind everything. Everything you love and hate about 20th century art, Duchamp did on purpose. Yes. Um, and so, if you, uh, if you want to play a, a character who is a little bit above it at all and has a sense of humor and uh, maybe pulling some uh, strings behind the scenes or uh, can be solving problems with epic chess battles in the Dreamlands... Uh, Pick up Dream Hands of Paris and tell your GM you want to play Marcel Duchamp. Or at least you want to play against him, but uh, make sure he gives you knight and first move. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Since our ineffable wonder by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or conceptual art by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>